Hello again. Have you been blessed so far? Yes. Praise the Lord. It's beautiful to be here in God's country. Before we begin our study, we do want to have a word of prayer. The title of our study today is God on Trial. And so let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before your awesome throne and we come boldly because we come in the name of Jesus. We know that when Jesus intercedes before you, that you hear our prayers and you answer them. We ask, Father, that as we open your holy book, which was inspired by your Holy Spirit, that that same Spirit that inspired your holy book will come and explain it to us as we study today. Help us to handle your word reverently and respectfully. Instruct us and empower us to live for you in these final days of earth's history. And we thank you for the promise of your answer, because we ask it in the precious and holy name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As probably you gathered from the scripture reading today, we are going to focus on the book of Job. I want to make some introductory remarks, first of all, about the book of Job in general. First of all, we know that it's the most ancient book of the Bible. And it is a literary masterpiece. It was written by Moses as he tended Jethro's sheep in the desert of Midian. The story actually is taking place about 2000 BC, but Moses wrote it somewhere around 1500 BC. The story takes place in the northwest section of what today is Saudi Arabia. The first two chapters of the book are in prose. Then from chapter 3 through chapter 42 and verse 6, it is poetry. And finally, in the epilogue, chapter 42, verses 7 through 17, once again, it returns to a literary style of prose. The central theme of this book has been misunderstood. Some people think that the purpose of the book was to explain why the righteous suffer. Others think that the purpose of the book is to encourage us to be faithful in the midst of suffering. Now there's no doubt that those two things are there in the book of Job. But really the central thought of the book of Job is God. He is the central actor of the story, not Job. This is a real life drama where the accused is actually God. God is on trial. Actually, when you read the book, you discover that what you have here is a judicial proceeding. It's a court scene. Because when you look carefully at the story, you're going to find a judge, you're going to find a jury, which are the sons of God, the representatives of the universe. You have an accuser or a district attorney. You have an accused, who many think is Job, but it's really God who is the accused. You have a defense attorney, which is actually God, because the judge 
in biblical times is also the one who is the defender of the innocent. You have an examination of evidence, you have a court verdict at the end, and then you have final rewards. The book is filled with legal language. Let me give you just one example of dozens that I have here written in my notes. Job 16 and verse 19, we find these words. Job is speaking. Surely even now my witness is in heaven, and my evidence is on high. Now it's important for us to realize that when Job went through this experience, there was no written revelation from God. There was no Old Testament, in other words, when Job went through this experience. So much of the knowledge that we have today, Job did not have access to. And for that reason, Job did not understand very much of what was happening. The heavenly universe was very much aware of everything that was happening on earth. But Job, who was living on earth, was totally unaware of what was happening in heaven at the same time. The book is a drama, a real life drama. So I want you to imagine a scene where the curtain opens and on the stage now you are on earth. And God is going to introduce Job. Let's go to Job chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 to see what kind of man Job was. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him, a sign of God's blessing, many children, many blessings. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. A very rich man, but also a very spiritual man, because he's described as blameless, upright, feared God, and shunned evil. He was rich. Yes, but he was spiritual. We also catch that when we go to Job chapter 1 and verses 1, 4, 5, and 8. Let's notice what it says. There was a man in the land of us whose name was Job. That man was blameless and upright who feared God and shunned evil. Verse 4. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, probably their birthday, and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was, when the days of feasting had run their course, that Job would send and sanctify them. He was a family man, and he believed in family worship, because it says he would sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said... It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. And then verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, because the first time that we read his character traits, uh, the, it's been simply written by Moses, but now God is speaking. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? 
that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Very rich, but very righteous, blameless in the sight of God. He was also a very generous person. He used his riches to bless other people. Notice Job 29 in verses 12 through 17. Job 29, 12 to 17. He was very charitable with his riches. He did not hoard riches. He used them to bless everyone he came in contact with. It says there in Job 29, verse 12 through 17. Because I delivered the poor who cried out, the fatherless and the one who had no helper, the blessing of a perishing man came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the poor, and I searched out the case that I did not know. I broke the fangs of the wicked and plucked the victim from his teeth. A rich man, but a spiritual man who did not hoard his riches, but used his riches to bless humanity. So we've already seen the first uh, part of the drama. The curtain has opened. We've seen Job on earth. Now the curtain closes. The, set, the stage is reset. And now the curtain opens again. And the scene moves to heaven. Job doesn't know that this is happening in heaven. This is an important detail in the story. Job has no idea what's happening in heaven, although all heaven knows exactly what is happening on earth. And so we read in Job chapter 1 and verses 6 through 8 the following words. Now there was a day when the sons of God, by the way the sons of God here are the representatives of the worlds that never sinned. God's heavenly counsel, if you please. So now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Why did Satan come among them? Well, because Satan had stolen Adam's position. Satan said to Jesus, you know, I give the kingdoms to whomever I wish, because Adam gave them to me. So Satan goes representing this earth, which probably implies that the other beings that came, the other sons of God, must have come also from other planets. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. In other words, from supervising and ruling my territory. And then notice what God says. Then the Lord said to Satan, probably with a little sense of, sanctified pride. Have you considered my servant Job? God is saying, Job lives in your territory but he's my servant. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Have you considered my, my servant you know, he lives in your territory, but he has these sterling character qualities. But of course, Satan has an answer. And I want us to realize, folks, 
that the entire heavenly universe is listening to this conversation. The representatives of the world, the heavenly council is listening to what God and what Satan are saying. So let's read verses 9 through 11. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, without self-interest? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. So in other words, Job is a mercenary. Job serves you for the loaves and the fishes. Job serves out of self-interest because you've put a hedge around him, a protective hedge around him, and you have not allowed me to do anything with him. Anyone would serve you that way because of the loaves and the fishes and because of all of the blessings. But now Satan challenges God. The accused in this story is not Job. The accused in this story is God. Notice verse 11. But now... Stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. So now God has a challenge. God could have said to the heavenly council, folks, you already know the character of this guy. He's a liar. Don't pay any attention to him. And not allowed Satan to test Job. But the heavenly beings would have had doubts. They would have said, well, you know, it's true. God has put a hedge around him. God has blessed him. And uh, God has not allowed Satan to touch him. Maybe Job does serve God for the loaves and the fishes as a mercenary out of self-interest and not out of love. So God puts himself on the line. And God says, I'm going to allow you to test him. He says, I am going to allow you to take anything and everything that he has. The test here, folks, is whether Job would serve God in, for good or for bad, in sickness and in health, in every circumstance, because he loved God and not out of self-interest. So the result is that God says to Satan, you can do anything you want with what he has. Notice Job chapter 1 and verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Are you catching the scene? Who is the accused? The accused is God. He says, You have prospered him. You have protected him. You have not allowed me to do anything with him. He serves you because he has self-interest. It's not because of love. And the whole heavenly universe is listening to this conversation. They says, who can be right? And so now the curtain closes. The stage is reset. And the stage opens. The curtain opens. And now we are once again on earth. In a matter of a few minutes, Job loses everything that he has. The Sabaeans come and steal the oxen, all the female donkeys, 
and kill all of the servants. Fire falls from heaven and consumes the sheep and the servants. The Chaldeans steal the camels and kill all the servants. A violent wind hits the house where his sons and daughters are gathered and every single, single one of them is killed. These calamities did not occur over the course of days or weeks or months. They occurred one right after another. Because the Bible says that as this one was giving his bad report, the next one was on his way to give his report. So in a matter of probably minutes or hours at the most, Job is bankrupt. He has absolutely nothing to cause, call his. He's lost his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his camels, his servants, and his children. And the heavenly universe is observing and saying, how is Job going to react? Does he serve God for the loaves and the fishes? Does he serve God out of self-interest? Or does Job serve God because he loves God no matter what happens? Well, we find the answer to this question in verses 20 to 22. Then Job arose tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. And now, because of his lack of knowledge, he tells a half-truth. The Lord gave, that's true, and the Lord has taken away, not true. But he doesn't know. Don't be too hard on Job. He had no scripture, like we do. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan said, he's going to curse you. But Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. And so now the heavenly council says, hallelujah, God was right. Job serves God because he loves him in the good and in the bad, in sickness, in health, in prosperity and adversity, God has been proven right. So the curtain closes. The stage is reset. The curtain opens and we're once again in heaven. Let's go to Job chapter 2 verses 1 through 3. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came. Listen, if they come, they don't live there, right? They came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and to, from walking back and forth on it. Same thing he said before. Now God, with perhaps a little little bit more of healthy pride says then the Lord said to Satan have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man one who fears God and shuns evil and still he holds fast to his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause and the heavenly beings the members of the heavenly council, representatives of the entire universe, are listening to what Satan is saying. Of course, Satan has an answer. 
verses 4 and 5. So Saint Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. In other words, Job serves you as a, mission, as a, um, as a mercenary because you didn't take his life. Anyone's willing to give up their possessions, but not their life. And verse 5 says, But stretch out your hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. So now the heavenly beings are saying, Yeah, God allowed Satan to take away everything that Job possessed, but God told him that he couldn't touch Job. So, hmm, maybe the devil was right that, uh, you know, to spare his life, Job still keeps his, uh, his trust in God as a mercenary. Maybe this is true. And so God now is going to respond. In verse 6, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. God could have said uh, to the heavenly council, You already saw that this guy's a liar. Job is still faithful to me, don't pay any attention to him, but doubts would have remained because God had said you cannot do anything to him personally. So now God says to Satan, go ahead, do anything you want to him, but don't take his life, because of course if he takes his life, the trial's over. And so now the curtain closes, the stage is reset, and now the scene is on earth once again. Job chapter 2 verses 7 and 8. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took himself for himself a potsherd, a piece of pottery, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Now Job has lost his health. He's lost all of his possessions. Now he's lost his health. And next he's going to lose the support of his wife. Job 2 verses 9 and 10. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Whose instrument was she? Satan's instrument, that's what Satan had said. Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Does Job still conserve his loyalty to God? Yes, in spite of the fact that he's lost his health, he's lost the support of his wife, and now his closest friends come to comfort him. <laughs> and as you know in the story, his friends end up being his accusers. He lost the support of his friends. Let's read verses 11 to 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they raised their eyes from afar, they did not recognize him. They lifted their voices and wept. 
and each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. This is a sign of extreme affliction and sadness. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So what has Job lost? Job has lost all of his possessions, all of his servants, all of his children, his health, the support of his wife, the support of his closest friends, and he lost the support and the admiration of all of the surrounding nations. Everyone had turned against him, apparently. In Job 30, 10 and 11, we find the nations coming against Job. It says, they abhor me, they keep far from me, they do not hesitate to spit in my face, because he, that is God, has loosed my bowstring and afflicted me, they have cast off restraint before me. In other words, the nations now rebuke Job and cast terrible assertions to Job. He's lost absolutely everything. Something has perplexed those who have studied the book of Job. And that is that all of the main actors at the beginning of the book reappear at the end. But the one who caused all of the suffering of Job seemed to disappear, not to reappear at the end. And so people say this is a travesty and justice. Because all of the actors, the main actors appear at the end, but the one who caused all of Job's affliction, he got off scot-free because he doesn't appear at the end of the book. Is it just possible that he does appear at the end of the book, but he's no longer called Satan, but he is called by a different name? We'll see. Now, in order to understand this book, I want to underline this again. Job had no written revelation from God. The first books of the Bible were written 500 years, approximately after this story took place. Job really believed that God, whom he loved with all of his heart, whom he had an intimate relationship with, had turned against him for some unexplainable reason. In other words, Job is saying, I can't understand this. I love God. And I, I've given my all for God. So why is all of this coming just in a short period of time against me? Why has God turned against me? Now we know from reading the Bible that God hadn't turned against him, but he didn't have the benefit of the scriptures that we have. So Job was tempted to, turn, to throw in the towel. The book tells us that he was tempted to think that perhaps God was dead. He was tormented with doubts and with questions because God had seemed to forsake him for no reason whatsoever. You see, Job had lost everything, including the idea that he had lost the support of his closest friend, God. So he had nothing. Now let's go to Job 16, verses 11 to 14. We've studied the first two chapters of the book. Beginning with chapter 3, all the way through chapter 38, Job is crying out to God, and God's answer is absolute silence. 
it seems like God has forsaken him as well. Let's notice what several passages where Job describes his feelings as he cries out to God. Job 16, 11 to 14. Job says, God has delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over to the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he has shattered me. He's talking about God. He also has taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces. He has set me up for his target. His archers surround me. He pierces my heart and does not pity. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with wound upon wound. He runs at me like a warrior. Job is saying, I don't understand what's happening. Why my most intimate friend has withdrawn the hedge of support, the hedge of protection. I just do not understand it. In fact, he shed tears during this period. Notice verses 16, 17, and verse 20 of chapter 16. Here Job says, My face is flushed from weeping, and on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands, and my prayer is pure. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. He's crying out to God, Why have you forsaken me? In Job 19, verses 6 and 7, once again, we find Job crying out to God. Know then that God has wronged me and has surrounded me with his net. If I cry out concerning wrong, I am not heard. If I cry aloud, there is no justice. Notice verses 9 through 11. God has stripped me of my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. He has also kindled his wrath against me and he counts me as one of his enemies. You kind of catch the gist of what's going on here? Notice Job 23 verses 3 through 9. He says, All that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me with his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. What's the problem with Job in all of these chapters? He can't sense the presence of God. He cries out to God, and God's answer is silence. No answer from chapter 3 all the way through chapter 38. God remains silent. In Job 30, verses 20 and 21, Job 30, 20 and 21, Job says, I cry out to you, but you do not answer me. I stand up and you regard me, but you have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you oppose me. In Job 31, verses 5 and 6, 
Job complains to God, If I have walked with falsehood, or if my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed on honest scales. See, this is the judgment terminology. Let me be weighed on honest scales that God may know my integrity. And finally, in verse 35 of chapter 31, Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. But Job had mixed feelings. While he's crying out to God, he feels forsaken by God, and God's answer is silence. He has very mountaintop experiences where he exhibits strong faith in God. Now if you think that it's wrong for Job to cry out, why have you forsaken me? You would have problems with Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me? Jesus crying out, why have you forsaken me, was not sin. Because Jesus would have been a sinner. Jesus felt much like Job felt, or vice versa. He cried out to the Father. The Father's answer was silence until he was called forth from the tomb on resurrection morning. Notice some of the moments of great faith of Job. Job 13 and verse 15, interspersed, interspersed with his crying out to God, for God to speak, to explain what's going on. He hasn't let loose of his relationship with the Lord, but he has questions. We find these mountaintop moments. Job 13 verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. I will defend my own ways before him. In chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, once again he exhibits this great faith in the midst of trial and suffering. It says there in verse 14, Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. And then he asks the question, If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service I will wait till my change comes. You shall call, and I will answer you. You shall desire the work of your hands. Beautiful passage. Notice Job 19, and verses 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall at last stand on the earth, and after my skin is destroyed, in other words, after I decompose in the tomb, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. So he had mountaintop experiences of faith and trust in God, but at the same time not having any revelation, he's questioning what's going on. He doesn't have the foggiest idea what is happening in heaven. Do you think it would have been a lot easier if he knew what was going on? Oh, it would have been a piece of cake for him. But his best friend had forsaken him. He'd lost everything. He thought in, uh, also that he had lost the support of God, his closest friend. Notice Job 23, 8 through 12. Job somewhat understood why he was going through this experience. He says there in Job 23, verse 8, Look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. But he knows the way that I take. 
when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. See, he, he had an inkling of what was going on. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. Was he still faithful, folks? Yes, he was. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He has not lost his trust in God, but he has questions. He's puzzled about what is going on. So this happens from chapter 3 to chapter 38. Finally, when we get to chapter 38, God is going to say to Job, now you be quiet, it's my turn to talk. I gave you all those chapters from chapter 3 all of the chapter 38. Now it's my turn. Notice chapter 38 verses 1 to 3. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What was the problem with Job? He spoke without what? Without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man I will question you, and you shall answer me. <laughs> Said, time to be quiet, Job. You've asked me a lot of questions. Why, why, why? Now, my turn. I'm going to ask, and you are going to answer me. And from chapter 38 to chapter 40, God asked Job over 50 questions. And for each question that God asks, Job feels smaller and smaller and more insignificant. God is going to tell him there's an enemy loose in the universe. You see, don't focus on your little tiny problem. You see, I have a much bigger problem that involves you, but it's a great cosmic universal problem that I have. So God breaks his silence and asks all of these questions. And in the process of asking these questions from Job 38 and 39, God describes the order of creation week exactly the way it happened in the book of Genesis. God reveals his greatness. He said, Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? And of course Job would say, no, I wasn't, I wasn't there. And then he speaks about, you know, the beasts that he created and the birds of the air. And he talks about the fish and he talks about the vegetation and he talks about, uh, you know, all of the things that he created during creation week. And as God expresses to Job his greatness and his power, Job feels smaller and smaller and smaller. And so the, the passage concludes in chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, when God asks Job a concluding incisive question. Do you do well to argue with the Almighty? That's where the last question that God asked. Do you do well to argue with the Almighty? And he continues. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He, rebu he who rebukes God, let him answer it. So God is saying to Job, You, you contend me, with me, as the Almighty. So you tell me, is that right for you to do that? And now Job is going to answer God. And I'm going to read from the New Century Version because it's clearer in Job 40 verses 3 through 5. And Job answered the Lord, 
I am not worthy. He's seen the greatness of God in creation week. The power of God. And he says, I am not worthy. I cannot answer you anything. So I will put my hand over my mouth. I spoke one time, but I will not answer again. I even spoke two times, but I will say no more. Lord, you've shut me up. You've proved your point. You're the great God of the universe, the creator, almighty. Who am I, puny little Job, to require answers from you? You've made your point. You are right, I am wrong. Now let's notice a very interesting detail at the end of the book. I mentioned that some have questioned why the one who caused all of Job's problems does not reappear apparently at the end of the book. He does reappear, but he's no longer called Satan, or Satan as we pronounce it. He is called Leviathan, Leviathan. Now let's go to Job 41. And notice who Leviathan is. Now, now it's going to dawn on Job. Because Job would have known in his culture what Leviathan represented. Because in the pagan surrounding nations, they believed that there was an enemy of the gods called Lotan. So in that polytheistic world, Job would have understood. Job was a monotheist. He believed in only one God. He would have understood that the enemy of the gods was Lotan. So he would have understood as a monotheist there was an enemy of God that was really causing this. Who is Leviathan? Let's notice some characteristics. You know, some versions translate the monster or the crocodile. Well, this is some crocodile as we read the description. Notice verses 1 through 4 of Job 41. God is now going to say to Job, he's going to ask some additional questions. He's going to say, Job, can you defeat, Le defeat Leviathan? Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? Or snare his tongue with a line which you lower? Can you put a reed through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Will he speak softly to you? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him as a servant forever? Notice that he can, he can actually speak to Leviathan. So Leviathan is actually symbolic of, a, of an individual or a person. Notice verses 18 through 20. I would read the entire chapter, but, but we don't have the time. It speaks about Leviathan sneezing, and when he sneezes, flash, light flashes forth. His eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lights. Sparks of fire shoot out. That's some crocodile, isn't it? Smoke goes out of his nostrils. As from a boiling pot and burning rushes, his breath kindle, kindles coals and a flame goes out of his mouth. This is a creature from hell. Notice verses 24 to 27. His heart is as hard as stone, even as hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. 
because of his crashings they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it cannot avail, nor does spear, dart, or javelin, he regards iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. In other words, Leviathan is humanly invincible. Now here comes a clue that helps us understand who Leviathan represents. Leviathan here, God is using Leviathan as a symbol of something far greater, as a symbol of Satan. Notice verses 33 and 34. On earth there is nothing like him which is made without fear. So Leviathan has no fear. He beholds every high thing. He is king over all the children of pride. That gives us a clue, doesn't it? Leviathan is the king over the children of pride. Now let's say a few things about Leviathan. This is not the only place where Leviathan is mentioned in Scripture. We know from Psalm 74 that Leviathan had multiple heads. It doesn't identify how many heads, but we know that it had multiple heads. Let's read Psalm 74, verse 14. See, what we're doing is we're allowing Scripture to explain Scripture. If you have Leviathan in Job 41, let's go to other places that speak of Leviathan and put them together. Texts that are uh, in harmony one with the other. Notice Job's, uh, Psalm 74, verse 14. Here the psalmist says, You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. So Leviathan has what? Heads, plural. Doesn't say how many, but we're going to see in another text how many. Notice Isaiah 27 and verse 1. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Isaiah 27 and verse 1. In that day, this is talking about after the millennium. I don't have time to get into that, but Isaiah 27 is speaking about events after the millennium. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great strong sword will punish Leviathan. The fleeting what? Hmm. So Leviathan is also the what? The serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the what? The dragon that is in the sea. So now we have some additional clues. He has many heads. We haven't identified how many. He is the serpent. And he is called what? He is called the dragon. Now let's go to Revelation 12. Verses 7 through 9. Revelation 12 verses 7 through 9. Here we're going to see clearly who Leviathan is in Job 41. Now Job is going to say, I got it. It's not really God that's doing this. It is really Leviathan. It is really Satan who is doing this. God is trying to make a point. Let's notice Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. Notice, you have the word dragon. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that what? Ah, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. Is that the name that is given to Satan at the beginning of the book of Job? Absolutely. So Leviathan is the dragon, he's the serpent, and he's Satan. 
who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth and his angels were cast down with him. So now Job says, I know what's going on here. God is not to blame for everything that's been happening to me. It is Leviathan. It is Satan who is causing all of these things. And so even though Job has said that he's not going to talk again, he says, excuse me, Lord, can I speak again? <laughs> Notice Job 42 and verses 1 through 6. Job 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, this is after seeing Leviathan, he understands now. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, even what? Even defeat Leviathan, according to the context. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? See, the problem of Job is he didn't have the knowledge. Therefore I have uttered what I did not, what? I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. See here refers to understanding. It's not talking about the literal eyes. It's talking about understanding. It's as, as Eve when she was in the Garden of Eden. Satan says, your eyes are going to be opened. He's not talking about physical eyes because she had 20-20 vision. He's talking about understanding. Now, Job is saying, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now, I understand you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He's repenting of questioning God. Not of sin. Because it tells us that Job did not sin. What was the end of Job like? He got double of what he had before. Notice chapter 42 verses 12 through 14. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than, the, than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep, <laughs> 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven, daughters, seven sons and three daughters. Wow. So all of his trial ended up in what? In blessing. Why did God give us this book? I believe the reason why God gave us this book is because God is describing here the experience that God's people are going to go through in the great tribulation that is described in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 21, Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, and Jeremiah chapter 30, known as the time of Jacob's trouble. God's people are going to lose everything during that period. All of our possessions, many of our friends, the support of our spouses, yes, our health as well, freedom, and it will appear during the time of trouble that even our closest friend, God, has forsaken us. Read the chapter on the time of trouble in Great Controversy. 
It's very similar to the story of Job. In fact, Ellen White refers to the language that we find in the experience of Job. So what happens if we love the Lord in the good times? As serve God as mercenaries. Serve God for the loaves and the fishes. And when everything goes well, we say, praise the Lord, I'm a Christian. But what happens when we lose everything? It's going to happen, folks. You remember the experience of the three young men who were thrown into the fiery furnace. For them, their love for God and their faithfulness to God was more important than their lives. They were willing to give up the most precious thing that God gave them, life itself. But you know, Job did not lose his life when he went through his tribulation. And the three young men did not lose their lives when they went through the fire. And Daniel did not lose his life when he was thrown into the lion's den. Because Jesus himself arose to protect Job and to protect the three young men and to protect Daniel. Because they trusted God and they loved God in the good times and in the bad times as well. So God's people are going to lose everything during this period. And I believe it's coming sooner than many of us think. You know, many people, many among God's people that have become prosperous, you know, in the, the original Adventists, you know, they were mainly poor people, but we've become prosperous and we've become comfortable and we depended more on our things many times than on God. Are we prepared for the time when we will have nothing and it will appear that even God has forsaken us, although we know that he hasn't? Let me ask you, is the story of Job going to be beneficial to us during that period? Is the story of Jacob's struggle with the angel going to be beneficial to us? Is the story of the three young men in the fiery furnace going to be beneficial to us? Is the story of Daniel in the lion's den going to be beneficial to us? Yes, none of God's people who go through the final tribulation will lose their lives. They will be protected by God. And the whole universe will see an entire end time generation a final generation that will relive the experience of Job and say, though he slay me, yet I will love him and I will trust in him. There's a lot of discussion about the final generation. You know, there's two groups in the church, those who believe that God's people will totally overcome sin before probation closes. They will not sin during the tribulation because there will be no mediator, there'll be no intercessor, and there are those that believe that because we have a sinful nature until Jesus transforms this mortal body into the likeness of his glorious body, that, you know, there's no way that we can overcome sin totally and completely. We're going to continue sinning until Jesus comes. I'm in the first camp. Because the Bible says I can do some things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> I can do what? All things. Not most things, all things, except overcome sin, of course. 
You know, when people say that it's impossible to overcome sin because we have a sinful nature, what they're really saying is that God is not powerful enough to give us victory over our sinful nature. Our sinful nature is more powerful than God. That's what we're really saying. We're not saying that man is weak, we're saying that God is not strong. God will have a people that are totally victorious, and the entire universe will see that God has an entire final generation that is faithful to God because they love God no matter what comes to their lives. Amen. Those are the kinds of believers that God is looking for in these last days. Those who will be faithful to God though the heavens fall. I end by reading James 5 verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So folks, let's learn not to complain, not to whine when things come into our lives that we don't like, that are uncomfortable, because God has a plan. As we studied last night, God has a plan. We don't know what the plan is until afterwards. And when we, when we come out of the tribulation, say, oh, thank you, Lord, I hadn't thought about that. Let's choose to hang in there because we love God above everything else. Father in heaven, we thank you for the story of Job, a story that will be reenacted once again by the final generation on this earth. Lord, we have nothing to be proud of. Even those who go through the time of trouble are going to see their own unworthiness. They're not going to be say, saying, I'm holy, I'm righteous. No, they're going to see their own unworthiness. They're going to cry out to God for his mercy and for his grace. Help us, Lord, not to be legalistic, thinking that we've, that we've arrived, that we're better than other people. Help us to keep our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, that as we focus on him, we will overcome every besetment, every sin in our lives, not for our glory, but for your glory. Thank you, Father, for having been with us and for answering our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.